Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Well, today we're going to talk about a recent study coming out of Weill Cornell on menopause and Alzheimer's. What's the link? Um, I know I've talked to many um, scientists who are really delving deeper into this topic. It was once believed that more women got Alzheimer's than men because age, but now we're getting more evidence that that's not necessarily the case. So joining me now is uh, Dr. Richard Isaacson. He is um, from Weill Cornell, and he's also uh, one of the leads in this study. Welcome, Richard. Hey, thanks, Deborah. Thanks for having me today. Okay, so, you know, this is a topic I have to admit, as much as I know about it, I still feel quite confused about it. And as a middle-aged woman, um, you know, I can't but help wonder, what is it about our hormones that's related to the brain? So um, let's just start there um, before we delve into the study. What do we know about the connection between um, estrogen and the brain? All right, well, well, taking one little step back, um, if you would have asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have said, um, I have no idea, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Five years ago, um, you know, we started the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Wild Cornell in New York Presbyterian back in 2013. It took a couple of years to kind of get my feet wet and understand, um, you know, uh, not just how people are doing, but how sex differences go in, in, in preclinical normal patients who are at risk for Alzheimer's. And it, it started becoming much more clear, like you said, that it's not just because women live longer. You know, two out of every three brains affected by Alzheimer's is women is a woman's brain. And and you know, we used to say we don't know why. Um, that's just honestly, I don't believe that that's the case anymore. I'm pretty confident that we have pretty significant clues that that can kind of not just understand the risk factors, but also how we can maybe intervene to reduce risk. So. All that is all that being said, um, there are, I believe, several reasons, um, and you know, there's, uh, you know, it's not just hormones. I think hormones is very important, and we'll talk about that. I think most women, when they come to see us, um, you know, I'm, I'm a physician, I'm a neurologist, I'm a practicing clinician in the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic, and you know, we get a lot of questions. You know, should I be on hormones? What should I take? Should I take a pill? Should I take a cream? When should I start? I'm not menopausal yet. I'm oh, I'm just starting to have premenopausal symptoms. I'm done with menopause. Should I start now? These are very common questions. And while I can't say we have the perfect roadmap or instruction manual of answers, I think the study that was just published, I was led by Dr. Lisa Moscone and um, basically the patients from the clinic. I've, I know probably 60 or 70 of these patients, literally like I've known them for five years. I know them like the back of my hand. Great people, beautiful people. I really appreciate their, their participation in the study. Um, but the long story short is um, there are multiple reasons why a woman could be on a different trajectory than a man. Um, hormones we'll definitely talk about, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Um, during the perimenopause transition, there are bioenergetic shifts. And that what, what that means is the brain's energy pathways change. And we can talk about that. But when that shift happens in certain women, they will be on a different fast forwarding road to Alzheimer's disease. And our goal as a clinician, my goal in the, in the clinic, is to get them off of that road using evidence-based and safe interventions. Is hormone replacement one of those interventions? I'm fairly sure it is, but it's not a one-size-fits-all answer. When to, when to start, what to start. Um, there's just so many questions here. Um, and I think I understand it much more now than five years ago. So I just want to back up a little bit because when um, women reach, you know, maybe their 40s and traditionally their 40s um, and estrogen begins, I mean, I guess your estrogen levels begin to decline probably in your late 30s. But um, is it true that different women have different degrees of, um, of an estrogen drop? Like some women's, it, it, it may be more gradual, others it's like kind of falling off a cliff. And if it is like falling off a cliff, is that worse? Is there evidence that that's actually worse for our brains? Sure, so um, the falling off the cliff um, analogy is a good one. And the, the thing that immediately makes me think of what would make a woman fall off the cliff in terms of a precipitous and honestly immediate drop in estrogen levels, the number one thing I can think of is surgical menopause, which basically means a hysterectomy where they take out 
the ovaries. Now in the past, 20 years ago and, and, and earlier, when women got hysterectomies, and there's a variety of reasons why women have to get hysterectomies, many reasons, uh, fibroids, you know, the extra, extra bleeding. I mean, there's just so many reasons we, we won't get into now. But when you take the uterus out and you take the, the, the ovaries out with it, and prior to that, the ovaries were working and there was some degree of you know, regularity of ups and downs of estrogen, which is normal throughout the, the cycle, um, when you take that out, that is like falling off a cliff. And, you know, I don't know that we have the perfect answers and, and the perfect evidence, but, you know, um, both the study that we, you know, did recently and just published and also other studies basically suggest that when you fall off that cliff, um, you know, that's that could be a problem, I would say, in certain women, um, in many women, but not all women, and that's a complicated thing. Does the women's genetics play a role? I think yes. The other thing that's really important is, did that woman go on hormone replacement therapy immediately? Okay, that's important. Um, what was that hormone replacement therapy? What was the dose? Was there progesterone? Was there just estrogen? What type of estrogen was it? Was it a pill? Was it a patch? Was it a cream? How long do they continue the estrogen replacement for? Um, if I had to say a yes or no, and you box me into a corner, is estrogen protective on the brain? Um, sure, I would lean towards yes. You know, I shake the eight ball, and I forget what the eight ball different sayings were, but you know, all signs are pointing to yes. Uh, but it's just not that simple. You know, a woman just can't say, "Oh, I, I heard this in this video, um, uh, doctor, blah blah blah, prescribe me estrogen. I want to prevent Alzheimer's." It's it's unfortunately a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and the study that we that we just published, um, Anila Rahman, who was one of our uh, superstar research coordinators, uh, was the first author in that study. Um, you know, we hired her years ago. She's now Blossom. She's doing great now. Get going to become a neuropsychologist. And um, what this paper showed is that um, you know we kind of understand more now about how hormone replacement therapy, how the perimenopause transition, how uh, a hysterectomy, for example, all these three things, not just affect maybe Alzheimer's risk, but really how they affect brain pathology. So in the brain, um, we can look at characteristics from the size of the brain, if there's shrinkage in parts of the brain that basically cause or are associated with Alzheimer's, the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. We look at the gray matter and the white matter. We look at the size of the brain or atrophy. We look at uh, metabolism, so something called glucose metabolism. If we see hypometabolism, well, that's a clue that there could be a problem, especially if those are, if those are hypometabolic, reduced energy uh, consumption and or really reduced energy metabolism is, is a better term in parts of the brain related to Alzheimer's. And then finally, is there amyloid in the brain? Amyloid is the pathologic protein that builds up in the brain of people with Alzheimer's and this gunks up. Is it the cause of Alzheimer's? I don't really think so. Uh, is it related to Alzheimer's? Absolutely. It's a biomarker um, that, that accumulates in, in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, but that stuff builds up. And, and now in, in that study, we really showed that um, women um, who are, you know, in the perimenopause transition and during menopause, um, and also women that, um, uh, you know, did hormone replacement therapy and, and other things, we understand now the relationships between those characteristics and brain pathology related to Alzheimer's. So long story short, it takes a long time to figure this stuff out. And I think the study was important because it, it just kind of, like, it's a little bit more clear now. So when you say it's more clear, does that mean because, I mean, I, I remember when I read this story, it was almost, it was almost um, stated that it was more a predictive thing, right? It's an indicator. So what exactly does that mean? Does it mean that um, combined with all of the other risk factors that you're talking about, if you look at the estrogen levels and or whether you had a hysterectomy or um, then we can predict whether or not our brains are at higher risk to developing Alzheimer's. Is, is that right? Like yeah, you stated? So, yeah, well, that's, that's totally correct. Um, and that's the 98% of people, physicians, researchers will give that answer. And I'm, I'm definitely in that camp. Um, using um, these, um, these, this information, whether a person is in the premenopausal, perimenopausal, or menopausal slash postmenopausal period, that is certainly a risk factor that can trigger the fast forwarding of Alzheimer's. Does it cause Alzheimer's? 
that's a topic for a different discussion. In my opinion, let's just say it fast forwards uh, Alzheimer's pathology. So I guess what I would say here is certainly we can use all this information, whether it's thyroid disease, whether it's hysterectomy, whether it did you or did you not take hormone replacement, how long you took it for. These are all related to predicting a person's risk. And, and don't get me wrong, that's really, really, really important. But, you know, as a doctor, that I have a patient sitting in front of me, I have a woman sitting in front of me who has multiple family members with Alzheimer's and she's coming to me, the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic, why? To reduce her risk of Alzheimer's. So I care much more about how we can use this information to provide a very individualized, evidence-based yet safe plan to try to mitigate risk. So I'm trying to use this information to um, basically like tailor, personally tailor and, and individualize um, the, the management protocol. Um, I can tell you if I had a crystal ball, um, what I would what I would you know predict is that in a couple of years or at some point, um, hopefully sooner than later, we'll be able to use these brain imaging studies or hopefully much easier to get a blood test one day or something. Um, it's not just estrogen levels, it's, it's other stuff too. We'll be able to use a blood test or brain imaging or whatever to not just um, predict a person's risk or to say, yep, this person's gonna get Alzheimer's dementia in a few years most likely or not. Uh, we can then say, uh-oh, wait a minute, this person actually needs this intervention, this hormone replacement therapy at this dose, at this time, this route, a patch versus a pill, and then we need to monitor the brain pathology or a marker of pathology in the blood or the brain, an image, a brain image, a blood test, and then we can monitor how the biomarkers are changing. And then we also monitor how the cognition is changing, how the person, how the woman's cognitive function is, is doing. If we give a therapy and then we can say, oh wow, the biomarkers are coming down, thumbs up, and look, their cognitive function's improving then that's the proof in the pudding that guess what? We are intervening, we are improving trajectory, we're probably reducing risk, we're probably delaying the onset of dementia, we're basically, in other words, preventing the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's disease dementia. So, so that's, that's how I see it in the future. You know, in, in, in 2020 and beyond, um, we're, we're, we're kind of like almost there a little bit, like I, I, we do this a little bit, we have a pretty comprehensive, uh, I don't want to say over the top, but you know we're we're not exactly the norm, but but most of what we do, 75, 80 percent of what we do in our clinic, I, I think any doctor can do. It just takes time and it takes education and it takes science to prove that what we're doing in the clinic is actually valid. Right, and it's it's a bit of a balancing act, right? I mean, it, like what you're describing is kind of the future of medicine that not everyone, most people aren't practicing, right? Which is precision medicine. It's like weighing all the factors and saying, okay, if you're more at risk. So let's just hypo, hypothetically say, you have a patient who's genetically predisposed to Alzheimer's, um, who is perimenopausal, maybe in their, her 40s, um, and things aren't looking great. Um, you know, you, you're saying this this person has an elevated risk for Alzheimer. So now, like obviously, you have to weigh the risk of hormone replacement therapy, right? So if they have a history of breast cancer, etc., you're probably not going to put them on hormones. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, so um, so I guess what I would say is ten years ago, my, my I would throw my hands up and say I, I I'm a brain doctor. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Here, but <laughs> Five years ago, I said, huh, you know what? Um, I think I'm understanding this a little bit better. Um, go see your OBGYN, and then I'll have a conversation with the OBGYN. And then um, eight times out of ten, the OBGYN would say, what? Why is a neurologist calling me? Like, an Alzheimer's prevention clinic? I don't understand. Like, back up a little. Um, nowadays, um, I have like some really great um, OBGYN colleagues, um, you know, my buddy Paul, he's in Houston. We were unfortunately texting about the, the COVID explosion in, in both of our respective cities during the times. Um, you know, I have a, someone in New York City. I have a handful of OBGYN reproductive endocrinologists. Um, I, I just have like a little bit of a network now that first of all, like, oh, of course you're calling me. Thank you for calling me. Now I get that response. And then I say, wow, what should we do? And that that's like a paradigm shift. You know, it's like a neurologist working with a OBGYN to like, to like personalize using um, 
emerging principles of precision medicine. And, and let me just define that term for, for viewers in case they don't know what that is. Precision medicine is a term that is very important. It's, it's not just the future of medicine. It's definitely the future of Alzheimer's. And honestly, I, I think most of that or, or a good part of that future of Alzheimer's is right now where we can take a person's genetics. We take a person's medical history. We take a person's, um, you know, cholesterol levels, metabolism levels, is their blood sugar high, is it low? We look at their brain um, function, we look at the structure of their brain, we look at brain metabolism, we take all these pictures and then we also add in body composition, like percent body fat, muscle mass, we add in cognitive function, um, are their memory, is it, is it normal, is it optimal, is it abnormal or is it borderline and we don't know yet? Um, so we take all these factors um, and we then personalize a plan. And um, what, what I've been doing with my colleagues now is we have to basically do a risk stratification uh, uh, you know, exercise. So if a woman has a history of breast cancer, if they smoke, if they're obese, and that woman, you know, therefore is at much higher risk of you know, maybe a negative, uh, you know, side effect or, or outcome, adverse event of, of, of taking hormone replacement, then, then we better be really careful. Um, you know, if a woman is postmenopausal and coming in and say, please, 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 I, I want hormone replacement. I read about it in a study. You know, I, I think that the evidence with postmenopausal, you know, most people would say it's tending maybe, maybe don't do it, but I'm not sure. Maybe each woman's a little bit different. Um, so I think you have to weigh the risks and the benefits. And it's not just the risks and benefits of, how of, of what you take and should you take it it's how long do you take it you know five years ago i would say i think based on the preponderance of evidence the totality of evidence i think if you take hormone replacement therapy for five to seven years during the perimenopause transition if there's no history of breast cancer if there's you know no other you know risk factors of something bad happening from estrogen or whatever um, I think it's probably okay. You know, talk to the OBGYN. I, I'm not making a decision. I don't prescribe hormone replacement therapy. Not a chance. I'm a brain doctor. Um, but in collaboration, I'll, I'll work with other physicians and we'll talk about risks and benefits and, and have the patient make an informed decision. Five to seven years kind of seem to be the sweet spot. But to be really frank, um, precision medicine is the answer, um, period. That's that's the way it is. Um, if, if, you know, if someone has an ApoE4 variant, which is basically um, ApoE is a gene, apolipoprotein, it's a, actually a cholesterol gene, apolipoprotein. If you have, um, you have different copies from mom or dad, a two or three or a four, if someone gets a four variant from mom or dad or two four variants, ApoE44, ApoE34, for example, if someone has that gene and they're going through the perimenopause, I'm going to treat them differently as opposed to someone who's ApoE uh, three, three, for example, or APOE, uh, three, two, or something like that. So the long story short here is, um, I wish this was like, um, like easy and straightforward. Um, but it's, it's complicated. Um, so we have a great question that's come in saying, when should you start getting tested for dementia issues? I have a mom, um, who passed away from Alzheimer's. My dad has dementia. Uh, and then also, does Marfan syndrome have anything to do with dementia? I don't know what Marfan syndrome is. But sure. Um, we'll talk, yeah, we'll talk about Marfan's in just a second. Um, so, oh boy. Um, so I'll give a few different answers and give a few different um, ways to frame this question because I don't think there's absolutely no consensus answer on this question. Um, I, I'll tell you what I believe. I'm not saying it's right. There's there you know many ways to fry an egg. Um, let me let me start by saying. Alzheimer's begins in the brain at least 20 to 30 years before the first symptom of memory loss. So, And we know that from the scanning studies that have been done, right? There's the presence of beta amyloid plaque in the brain up to 20 or decades before you actually have a symptom. Sure. And, and, and I guess the answer to that question is um, amyloid can be in the brain anywhere between 12 and 15 years before or in some people who have higher genetic risk. Um, 20 to 30 years before, and, and this is a little controversial, I would say more towards 20, you know, in, in the ABLE study, the Australian uh, group, that was about 19 years. Uh, but again, amyloid is just one biomarker for Alzheimer's, and I think most of the field has really gotten hung up on amyloid. I'm not anti-amyloid. I'm, I want to get rid of amyloid. Amyloid's bad, but um, I think it's much more than that. There's other pathologies, glucose hypometabolism. Again, like we talked about, the brain can either use um, sugar, glucose, or ketone bodies, which is a brain healthy fat uh, for fuel, um, you can see signs of glucose hypometabolism in the brains, you know, I would actually say more than 20 years before. Uh, but, but then if you take a different perspective, um, I really believe in the life course 
trajectory, the, the, the life course approach of Alzheimer's. And, and just to take it way back, um, the food that a mother eats when she is pregnant, okay, maternal diet, like just as one example, B vitamin concentration, B vitamin amounts in maternal foods that they eat affects cognitive outcomes of the baby. So Alzheimer's prevention, if you really want to be, um, you know, take a life course approach, should start in the womb. And then you look at what are the early life risk factors. Well, early life risk factor, the most, most important one is years of education, educational attainment. So, you know, higher the IQ, the higher the years of education, the more protected someone is against Alzheimer's. So I take a early life, midlife, and late life um, kind of approach to Alzheimer's risk reduction. Um, so all that being said, um, what we do in our clinic is you, you take the average age of your family members and you minus um, a solid 15 to 20, uh, you know, probably 20 uh, if you want to be like, you know, more confident. And that's when a person at a minimum um, should pay attention to their risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, you, so some would say, oh, okay, all my relatives, I got three relatives, their average age was 70, I should come in at 50. Well, again, it's not one size fits all because, you know, at 50, um, that's right when the perimenopause transition is happening. Well, maybe it's better to come in at 45 or 40 uh, so you can get a cognitive baseline. You can see what your biomarkers, your cholesterol, metabolism, maybe get a brain scan. That's, you know, that's more for specialized clinics, um, but, but or not even, I think, in the future. So, so I, I think the answer to that question is not, is not perfect, but at least 20 years or a little more, maybe okay. a little more of uh, you you are the first person who has ever said to me the the before you know birth in womb um, and now I'm thinking oh my god with three kids what did I eat <laughs> no one ever told me that before yeah um, and you don't get too worked up over that I mean you know, there's that's one you know that's one study I quoted for example but but no there's just so many different um, you know it just makes sense you know what yeah. we're doing now and we spent um, we're going to be publishing a study. Um, uh, soon, I can't say anything else because of the embargoes and stuff. But you know, we we launched um, brain health education for high school and college students. We did a a very large, you know, really cool randomized controlled trial of of using education. Um, and um, you know, Seth Rogen, for example, was was mm -hmm. the professor. He's a comedic actor, funny guy, nice guy. Uh, and basically, we had different courses. One taught by me, one taught by him. I can't say if he beat me or, or if I beat him, but maybe I. Let's just say I, maybe I didn't win in some of the, some of the categories and courses and, and students. But long story short, we're we're trying to take brain health to the the next generations, um, and that's really I think I think brain health education needs to happen in health classes. Um, you know, starting in you know middle school at a minimum. Uh, period. And it's so important because it's, we know we can make our brains healthier. We know right now we can't really stop neurodegeneration, right? But we can make them healthier in order to kick the can down the road. Ooh, can we stop neurodegeneration? That's, that's a loaded question. Also probably for a different, uh, for a different uh, uh, conversation, but um, that's a tricky one. Um, so when it comes to um, the other part, the uh, Marfan syndrome. Um, so oh, Marfan yeah. is, is basically, I can just summarize it as a connective tissue disorder. Um, it's characterized by um, um, uh, people with Marfan's actually, um, they have kind of a, a characteristic look. Um, they're sometimes a little bit uh, taller and lankier. Um, you know, longer arms, things like that. Um, I actually went to, to camp with a, an old, old friend of mine, super, super cool guy. Uh, and he had, uh, you know, he was like double jointed. He can move his arms differently. And it's a connective tissue disorder. So their joints are a little bit more lax. Um, that's not something that I put, you know, pretty high on my list as, as, a, as a, you know, major risk factor for uh, Alzheimer's disease. They're at risk for some other things, some cardiac things. But um, uh, it's not, not super high on my list at all. Okay. And we have another question that's come in saying, how would you treat... A person with APOE4 differently. Uh, we have two hours for this chat, or four hours. <laughs> and now, um, and there's different degrees, right? You could be homozygous and have one copy, heterozygous and have one copy, and homozygous and have two copies, right? One from each parent. And obviously, if you have two copies, you're more at risk. Yes, uh, probably more at risk. But that's another loaded question. So um, uh, I'll first start by saying that APOE. Um, Four, the four variant. Uh, a lot of people call it the APOE gene or the APOE four gene. It's the best, most, I guess, accurate way to call it is the APOE four allele, A L L E L E, or variant. It's a variant of APOE. It's you get a two or three or four. And like you said, heterozygous means hetero, one of 
one of something and one of something different, a four and a three or a four and a two. Um, and then uh, homozygous is a four and a four. So now that we understand the terminology a little bit, a lot of people know their APOE4 status, a lot of people say, or APOE4 results uh, through at-home commercial testing. Um, and it's very common. Millions of people know if they have E4 or not. 25% uh, of the population has at least one copy of the APOE4 gene, one or more. And about 1% of the population has uh, two copies of the APOE4 variant. Um, in our program, since we're kind of a biased population, uh, about 10, 11% of our, of our clinic, we've seen about 750 patients um, in the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic, and uh, about 11%, I believe, uh, that in a study we published last year in Alzheimer's and dementia, 11%, uh, I believe, um, had the had two, two copies, so uh, homozygous, and um, I believe it was um, 39% had uh, one copy. So it was like literally 50-50 in our program, whether or not you had the APOE4 variant. So as that is the background, um, first of all, you can't just use the APOE4 variant to, um, to, to hang a hat on in terms of predicting risk. It's much more complicated than that. The concept of polygenic risk is, is very important. Uh, and I know the question was, what should I do if I have it or not? Um, the, the reason why I'm taking a, a couple of steps back is because um, I don't just look at E4 in isolation, um, and that's, I think, really important. Um, I look at the APOE4 gene. Um, in our program, we may order other genes. Um, in our program, um, a subset of people, we're trying to get funding now to really blow this out of the water and, and do whole genome sequencing uh, on all of our patients. I mean, this is a massive, massive, massive project. It is absolutely the future of Alzheimer's. It absolutely can be done right now. It just takes so much freaking time. It's not even the money issue. It's just you need time and time. You need to go on a spelunking mission to, to understand. So if I if I know, know the APOE4 gene, I'm gonna look at their um, the person's body fat. I'm gonna look at their metabolism, their blood sugar. I'm gonna look at all these other factors. I'm gonna look at their cognitive function, their memory, executive function, processing speed, learning abilities. Uh, I'm going to look at all of this important collaborative information. And then based on the whole picture, I'll then give a personalized plan incorporating their APOE4 variant into the plan. So just because I hear that someone has the four, I can't just tell them, oh, do this versus that. But in our program, um, we get a deeper dive. We the term is phenotypically, there's genotype, genotype and phenotype. We genotypically characterize and then phenotypically, the genes is the genetic genotype. Phenotype is what we see and what we observe and what we can, you know, show. Um, so now I'll get to the answer to your question. Um, but um, APOE4, and we've published multiple papers on this, um, and I, I, would, I would direct you to the, to the, to the folks watching. Um, the, the, the results of, of personalizing care is a paper called Individualized Clinical Management of Patients at Risk for Alzheimer's Dementia. It was published in late 2019 in the journal Alzheimer's Dementia. Um, the, uh, another paper, clinical, The Clinical Practice of Alzheimer's Risk Reduction, a, a Precision Medicine Approach, that was published late 2018. You just Google, Google the titles, you'll find it. Um, and then uh, most importantly, and, and there's really important information there about the, the, the gestalt, the, the overall way we approach. Specifically on this question, we've written multiple papers. Um, um, there's a paper in the Journal of the Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease called um, the um I'm forgetting what it's called, but it's um, APOE uh, in clinical practice or whatever it is, uh, you know, a precision medicine approach. And, and it's basically, uh, we, we sketch it out there. So if you just want some top level to-dos, um, I really care about a person's cholesterol levels if they have an APOE4 variant. Right. Two and variants, I really, really care about cholesterol. Um, I believe people can be on different roads to Alzheimer's. Women, you know, certainly the, the hormonal brain bioenergetic road uh you know people with the apoe4 variant um I, i'm okay with that like i know what i'm up against like oh oh terrible oh i have this gene i i understand it must be shocking that your risk may be higher but i'm saying it may be higher because of polygenic risk and it may be higher because if that person does everything right you know people with the apoe4 gene in certain studies um actually you can you can you can help that, you can fix that, you can make those genes work better for you, you can try to help win the tug of war against your genes. You know, like for example, high intensity interval training, study published uh, or presented at AAIC last year, if you really want to improve memory, you, you got to do high intensity interval training in people with the APOE4 gene. That's, that's one, you know, basic personalized thing. All people should probably do high intensity interval training at some point if their you know, body can handle it and their doctor says okay, uh, but, but you know, 
that's an important intervention. Um, cholesterol, you know, getting cholesterol managed in people with E4, really, really, really important. Um, like so important because they're on that cholesterol road, cholesterol fat, high cholesterol fast forwards Alzheimer's disease. Uh, ApoE4, you know, with 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 body fat and, and and metabolism. If someone has diabetes, you have a twofold risk. People with diabetes and E4 and cholesterol. I mean, this is this is like a smoldering fire. So, um, you know, people with two copies of the E4 gene, we're going to do things a little differently. And, and you know, it depends on how much evidence you want to go by. There's a study in the European Journal of, of Clinical Nutrition or something like that that shows that people with two fours preferentially may have been protected by elevated or, or, or you know, higher than, you know, our typical normal levels of vitamin D. So maybe vitamin D is, is preferentially effective. Um, with, with ApoE4 also, um, some of the, the drugs that are coming out are, are probably more preferentially effective. Um, you know, carbohydrate intake um, probably needs to be modified, whether you have a four or not. I'm a little bit more um, kind of aggressive when it comes to carbohydrate lowering in, in people with a four variant who don't have the best blood biomarkers of metabolism and cholesterol risk. So, um, I wish I could give you like a, a specific recipe, but um, there's you know, a lot to consider. Oh, there's so much. I mean, you know, physical exercise is so important in E4 variants. Um, smoking is just extra bad in people with the E4 variant. Um, I, I mean, the list can just go on and on from dietary to lifestyle to sleep. Um, I mean, sleep, sleep hygiene, and deep sleep, and uh, so important for people with E4 because E4 has a fast forwarding of amyloid deposition, and if you're not sleeping. During deep sleep, that's when the garbage gets taken out. The amyloid gets kind of, you know, deposited or disposed of, um, uh, disposed of really. Uh, so I, I wish I could give a, a specific answer, but if we had two hours, I could talk more about it. Well, that's why it's called precision medicine, right? There's so many factors to consider. Um, yeah. Richard, I wanted to ask you, though, like bringing it back to hormones, and you had mentioned, you know, a combination of estrogen and progesterone, and I know... Um, you know, if you're having hormone replacement therapy, um, most people are, are prescribed estrogen with progesterone um, to really kind of balance out the hormones. Um, what What is the role of all that? Um, I know we, we know, do we know exactly what role estrogen plays in our brains? Yeah, so um, I think I'm fairly sure I'm hopeful because it's easy that um, estrogen has a protective impact on brain health in women during the perimenopause transition uh, for a specific period of time, unclear exactly, five, seven, eight years in a specific woman, again, precision medicine. But um, I think estrogen is a protective hormone. When the hormones start dipping, you know, estrogen, you know, people say menopause, I got, I got hot flashes, I got, I got all these symptoms, right? That, that's brain, that's, that's the brain causing those symptoms. And, and you know, like if we can be more brain protective, um, that can hopefully and probably, I believe, um, slow brain aging. And that's a good so, one. Someone is asking though, would you prescribe HRT for APOE4? Uh, these are, that's a great question. Um, this is a, um, a little bit of a complicated answer. Um, I'm gestalt pro apoe uh, sorry pro uh pro, again, gestalt i'm not making any blanket recommendations it depends on the person but uh hrt if under the supervision of a uh, of a qualified medical professional obgyn um makes sense to me if 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 big qualifiers the risks are lower breast cancer whatever else um, you know, whether or not to use progesterone, you need to make that decision based on do they have a uterus or not and other considerations. Um, but, you know, track the estrogen. You know, we, we track estrogen every six months. You know, we, we um, work with the OBGYNs to maybe titrate the HRT to a very specific estrogen level that we think but don't know for sure is kind of the right level to, um, you know, balance risk versus benefit. Um, you know, when it comes to HRT, um, do we really need pills? right? I don't know that we need pills. Um, pills, you take it and then it goes everywhere. Like what about um, a little bit of a cream? What about a patch? Slow and continuous delivery, right? Maybe that makes more physiologic sense. What about starting at the absolute tiniest little dose? Like Alzheimer's develops over decades. Like you don't have to like go try to prevent Alzheimer's tomorrow by, you know, throwing yourself on a big dose of a pill. Um, I think also a lot of times, um, you know, um, I hate to say this, but some doctors kind of take a Band-Aid approach uh, where they have sleep problems and, okay, maybe progesterone 
you know, maybe, uh, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I'm not, again, I'm not an OBGYN, just, just a, a clinical observation. I've seen a couple times when, when, when the doctor will say, oh, oh, sleep issue, okay, progesterone. Well, in a person with Alzheimer's risk, well, maybe we should try to, you know, modulate the estrogen because that could have a protective effect too. So, so these are, again, these are all like very difficult clinical questions. I'm not saying I'm, I, I have the answers here. Um, but what I am saying is that everything needs to be individualized. Um, lower dose, less is more at first. Monitor trajectory. You know, ideally in our program, we not just monitor estrogen levels, we monitor cognitive function. We monitor menopause symptoms. The menopause symptoms get better, but we're probably on the right track. Um, you know, you know, when it comes to um, estrogen also, um, there's different types of estrogen. You know, there's equine and there's this. Th th these things are really complicated. Um, when it comes to an APOE4 woman, um, uh, you know, our, our program is a little different because we have, you know, me memory measures. Like, I, I kind of understand their brain bioenergetics before I even look at their brain because I can see it. Memory is declining in certain ways, and, or not declining. They don't, may not have, a woman may not have symptoms, but they have lower than expected memory performance on the computer based and other tests that we do. It's a really important concept because coming in with symptoms means the horse is out of the barn a little bit yeah. and especially when someone has dementia the horse has been out of the barn for decades way harder to treat like you're just not going to have tangible benefits as compared to minimal or no symptoms and we see people with minimal or honestly no complaints in the majority 60 to 70 percent of our patients have no symptoms but they may have no symptoms but we then do a very sensitive careful 45 minute you know battery of cognitive tests and we detect that based on their age and education their memory function is lower than expected. It's not abnormal. They don't have dementia. They don't have mild cognitive impairment. But, you know, they have this, like, precursor phase where they're at risk for further memory decline. And if we can catch this early and detect it through a cognitive test, that predicts to me that the brain energetics in a woman in the perimenopause transition, transition are lower. And if that woman has the ApoE4 variant, I'm going to be even more um, attuned to trying to fix this. And I titrate, again, we titrate in collaboration with an OBGYN based on estrogen level, based on, honestly, first of all, menopausal symptoms, are the symptoms better? And then, of course, does their memory change? In, in, in reality, in an ideal world, we would get, and this is what we're doing now with studies, we get the brain energetics and the all imaging stuff at baseline. We repeat them in 18 months. We just started repeating them probably six months ago in, in our program. And then, of course, COVID hit, and then uh, things got a little bit tricky. But yeah, we want to track things over time. Does that hormone replacement actually improve bioenergetics? Does it reduce amyloid? Does it improve memory? Um, my eight ball that I shake says all signs are pointing to yes, uh, but we don't have definitive proof, so I can't say that. Okay, so let me let me put the question a different way. Um, you know, all of us, you know, as we're reaching perimenopausal, menopausal age. Um, I, I, you know, admittedly with my girlfriends, we all talk about, you know, oh, wow, we're, our memory's not as good and oh, we must be reaching menopause because we can't remember anything anymore. So why is it, I mean, is that normal? Is it, is it, do we just think we're losing our memory or are we actually losing our memory because we're, we're reaching menopause? Yeah, so um, I'm going to give a collective apology on behalf of most physicians out there because in, in, in doctor land, in, in medical training, when I was in med school, you know, a little less than just about almost 20 years ago, getting old, um, but uh, a lot of Botox, so trying to kind of stay <laughs> Um, Botox for migraines, not Botox for cosmetic. Come on. Um, that way insurance pays for it. No, I'm kidding. Um, so um, in medical school, we never learned about, um, you know, that menopause is causes like cognitive changes like we never even like that was not even on the radar like zero um, and then we kind of learned that there are some cognitive um you know aberrations but it's fine it's just due to i don't know hormones or whatever lack of sleep it's not real and 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 and, and the problem is i said it's not real well absolutely that's not correct these are real symptoms these are absolutely real but but how i'm going to characterize it is different from what you just said these are absolutely real tangible um, cognitive changes. You use the term memory. Memory is a loaded term. Uh, when I'm talking the word memory, I know it's memory because I do the tests. Um, the problem with cognitive function is if your attention is less than it used to be, if your processing speed is lower than it used to be, if your ability to learn new information is less than it used to be, the person may say they're having a memory problem. No, it's memory. I'm forgetting things. No, it has to be memory, but not necessarily. We test all these different 
there's downstream and upstream, right? If someone can't consolidate information and get it into the memory banks, PAPE circuit, long-term, short-term, PAPEs is actually at Cornell. Um, if you can't consolidate the memory, that may be an attention thing or a processing speed thing. That's not memory. So, so what I what I would say here is it's essential to characterize the exact cognitive change related to the perimenopause transition before jumping on memory. Oh, I have Alzheimer's. I think that's right. really important. Um, all that being said, there is certainly some memory dysfunction. And notice I said some, because a lot of times, I even want to say most of the time, it's not memory. In the people that actually have a memory problem, the women that have a memory problem during the perimenopause transition that have multiple family members with Alzheimer's that have an APOE4 variant, one or two, that's when I start getting a little worried. Um, that's when I say, wow, we, how is your exercise? What is your cholesterol? Ooh, what, like, what, I need to know everything about you. Okay, not just how many days a week you're exercising. What are you doing? What is your average heart rate during the exercise? Oh, you're on an elliptical, but you're texting? No, 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 no. That's not intense exercise enough. You need, you need more. You know, oh, oh you're, you're, not, you're not doing strength training? What do you mean? You're just doing cardio. That's not, that's not good. You need to build muscle because if you don't build muscle, you're not going to increase your metabolism. So, so I get really um, serious with women who truly have a app, like an objective memory problem. We do, we do like multiple different cognitive tests in our, you know, our, our cognitive battery, 45, 55 minutes. Um, if it's a memory problem, I'm legitimately concerned, and I will predict that there is a bioenergetic change in the brain that we can um, really detect. But you know, in research studies, we do this. Um, in in clinical practice, these studies, these tests are not covered. These tests are very expensive. There's radiation involved in some of these tests. Um, so so yeah, I, I, I completely buy it. It's totally real. Um, but we just have to be careful about how we characterize it. Um, when when a woman is having these symptoms, I also really, really, really dive deep into um, sleep. Um, you know, sleep disturbances through the perimenopause transition are like absolutely um, so essential to characterize. You know, in our clinic, we have um, over 50 people wearing this um, to risk biosensor. Um, we've just published on this in the Journal of the Prevention of Alzheimer's, uh, where we can use bio um, uh, bio sensor information and put it in an algorithm to predict how the brain is functioning. It's actually pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, but we can track sleep. It's not just total sleep. Um, it's how long does it take to fall asleep, deep sleep, how much REM sleep there is. Uh, we look at cardiovascular measures like something called heart rate variability. Is a woman ruminating about their symptoms? Are they having repetitive negative thinking, which fast forwards amyloid and tau deposition, uh, which you know fast forwards shrinkage of the memory center in the brain? So in, in women during the perimenopause transition, it's not just just about the hormones. It's about everything that's downstream from you know the sleep being disturbed by the hormones, the sleep's being disturbed. So I'm ruminating about it. Is this a serotonin problem? Is it an estrogen problem? We need to like. Um, talk about pharmacological and non-pharmacological approaches, sleep hygiene, could we take a supplement, are you exercising, are you having caffeine before bed? There's like so many different things we need to address for, for, for a precision approach. And what I really like, because um, I, th I think um, basically there's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of people who um, purport to have evidence, even though maybe they don't have quite the evidence that they should have in order to tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. um, what I really like about um, what you're doing at Cornell New York Presbyterian is you're really applying the science behind a lot of these lifestyle factors um, where it's necessary to have more research um, so that we have evidence um, into some of these life lifestyle changes. So. Just to sum it up here, um, I'm going to throw the question to you a little bit differently. Um, for the people uh, who are seeing doctors who may not be like yourself, who know a lot about precision medicine, what are the questions that they should be asking their doctors in order to identify some of these risk factors that they might not be aware of? Great question. So um, I, I first want to say have empathy for your physician. Um, uh, not just in years past, but in the last couple of months with COVID and what it's going to happen in the next several months to a year going forward. Um, most people don't realize this, but physicians, aside from just frontline workers um, who are putting their lives at risk every day, um, uh, most physicians are struggling 
um, in ways that most people, the public, don't understand. Um, you know, doing telemedicine is great, uh, but but you know, it's just not the same reimbursements. Um, you know, people are having to you know be laid off. You know, laying off people in their practice. Um, you know, um, not being able to find jobs. Doctor, yep, doctors who are in demand. So first, just be be and patient and empathetic. Being patient is important um, across all spheres. Good, 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 good name there. Um, and um, be empathetic about your doctor because they have like 15 minutes and they get like, you know, this much money for like, it's it's just insane. And then they do 20 hours of extra work for, for whatever their week and then they don't get reimbursed for that. So number one, be patient um, and be empathetic and be compassionate. Number one, sorry to just, just put that out there. I think it's important nowadays. That being said, um, your doctors need to take care of you, right? And your doctors should take care of you in the most rigorous evidence-based way possible. Um, but again, most doctors did not learn any of this in med school. It's not their fault, um, and this stuff is really hard. Um, the first thing that I would say is we have a website that is free, not trying to sell anything, 100% free, uh, where we've actually tried to educate the public in a rigorous, again, evidence-based way. Um, all the clinical work we do is research-based. We publish on it. If I'm telling people to do this, you know, whole thing that I'm telling people to do and you think it sounds cool and I think it sounds cool but it doesn't work well I need to tell I, I'll be the first person who I was wrong I'll be the first person to admit it so we need to study clinical care we then also need to study education and this this website is called alzu.org Alzheimer's universe it has six different courses if a, if a woman is out there if anyone is out there that wants to learn more um, sign up for free ticket course it's about two hours and change totally free interactive lessons uh, will teach you everything you need to know about what 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 to track what to know about yourself uh, all that kind of stuff there's also a course on there for physicians for medical students for neurology trainees yep we're hitting every we're trying to hit every angle high school students college students because just people just don't know about this stuff it takes 10 to 15 years for something proven in science to be translated into direct medical practice so if someone wants to be empowered out there and learn more um, learn more I would say through this website, it's it's uh, it's as good as we have, um, and the content is relatively fresh. Um, so that that's what I would say. The other thing that I would I would strongly say is know your numbers. Every single woman out there, every single person out there, needs to know um, their. I mean, so much about themselves. Yes, you should, every woman and man should know their weight, fine, but they should know their body fat. What, what's their percent body fat? Where is the body fat? Is around the, the belly. The high, Are you talking about body. BMI? Are you talking oh, about BMI? Is um, is a is a very rough um, kind of I don't know, not the best term. I'm not sure if you link out to things, but there was a CNN uh, study that came out a week ago, or CNN uh, story that came out yeah. uh, with, with women, and I I, I tried to give a, an overview there. But in long story short, BMI is a very rough number. You take height and weight, you do like a calculation. Uh, that's like so antiquated. Um, it's not just about that. What is your waist size in college versus your waist size now? If it's more than several inches larger now, that means you probably have visceral or, or belly fat. And belly fat uh, increases metabolic risk, diabetes risk. And most importantly, from my perspective, it increases um, shrinkage of the memory center in the brain. Okay, and it increases Alzheimer's and dementia risk. So people should know their numbers, their waist circumference, track it over time. Know your body fat, track it over time. Know your muscle Wait, mass, it, track it can over I, time. Can I just interrupt you in the belly fat thing? Because, you know, I'm a runner, I go running every day, but like if I put on weight anywhere, it's around my waist, right? Mm -hmm. It's 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 there. So, yeah. and I've never been the washboard stomach person, but I'm I'm quite thin. I'm not overweight by any means. But that's still, could that still be dangerous? How does anyone know if if you're thin that you could be at risk? Yeah, so the, the term here is skinny fat. Um, and, you know, I I can't comment on you and your specific situation right now. And I, I would be, I would literally, we would need to measure your waist and look at the thing. Um, you know, there are body fat scales on the market that are there. I wouldn't say they're, I would say they're, some of them are far from perfect, but some of them are pretty good. You know, we have a fancy expensive one in the office, but you can go on Amazon. Before we had the fancy one, I literally bought a scale for $150 on Amazon. And that was our scale for like the first, I don't know, six months of our clinic. Um, so know what your body fat is our scale looks at it's it's a bio impedance where you kind of stick your fingers on your arms and it tells you is there visceral fat and what the percentage is and stuff like that um you know i can't say specifically but you know um men should have a percent body fat um absolutely you know definitely less than 20 percent 
definitely. And then with age, as age goes up, fat normally goes up too, but definitely less than 20%. You know, 17 is what I, 17 to 19 is what I shoot at a minimum for most men. For women, it's different uh, with breast tissue and, and other metabolic um, differences than men. Um, you know, definitely less than 30% body fat. Uh, and most skinny women that have fat along the belly side um, still are less than 30, but are they at 26%, 27%? You know, what is optimal? It really depends on the woman. Um, and it really depends on their, you know, blood sugar levels. What is their fasting blood sugar? What is their fasting insulin? What is their hemoglobin A1C, like oscillated hemoglobin, this number that we, you know, many doctors check to screen or check for diabetes, not the perfect number. But um, so, you know, it's not just about, do I have a little belly here? Is it a pooch? Is it real? You know, cellulite on the legs is not metabolically inactive. It's just like cosmetically bad. Like for some women, they think it looks bad. Okay. Big, for me, big deal. For the for, for the, what I care about, I don't care about cellulite. Take all the cellulite, cellulite, whatever. Belly fat can slow down metabolism and increase brain aging. So um, I, I would tr again triangulate. Um, we call it the ABCs: anthropometrics, which is body composition; B is blood-based biomarkers; and then C, cognitive function. I have no idea if your uh, if your perception of fat along your midsection. Uh, you're, again, this is a perception because I need objective data. I have no idea if it's if your percentage is high. I have no idea if your blood biomarkers are abnormal, and I have no idea if your memory is lower than expected. But if your memory is lower than expected, if your insulin levels are high fasting, which it shouldn't be, insulin resistance, fast forwards, amyloid, and if your body fat is high and your visceral fat is high, um, I mean, and you have an ApoE4 gene, you're at risk. Oh yeah, we got You need high intensity interval training. You need dietary changes. You need uh, time restricted eating. You need um, you know carbohydrate restriction several days a week, most likely. I mean, there's you know good carbs versus bad carbs. Minimize the bad carbs, but uh, I mean this is complicated. I mean, what you what you've really proven today is that there's just so much to think about, right? But um, really, we are the um, CEOs of our own health, and so. Oh, yeah should be able to ask these questions, right? Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that not everyone's as educated, but as you pointed out, you can go to allsu, is that right? Allsu.org.com, yeah. yeah. what is it? Alz.org, yeah, or the, the com will get you there, but alzu.org, yeah. Okay, ALZU, we'll, we'll post this on the link um, to know more about really your health and um, how it relates to your brain. Um, I think this is a really exciting area. I think we're really on the cutting edge of it all. Um, I'm so glad and grateful to you, Richard, um, for really taking this topic and saying we're gonna apply evidence, scientific evidence to all of this. Um, and you know, the more we learn about the brain, we the more we understand how systems are related. Like you can draw a Venn diagram around your heart to your brain, you know, your, your sugar glucose levels to your brain. Um, so all of this is, is hugely important. Um, so thank you so much for joining us um, today. Um, if people have more questions, I guess they can they can go to the site. Is that right? How do they how do they get in touch? Uh, yeah, they could. We actually have a little uh, link about, I like, guess, the doctor or something like that, and those um, get funneled to me, uh, and then we sometimes send uh, mass emails out about that. Um, we haven't sent one out in, during the COVID times, um, yeah. but we'll get back on that. Understandably, everyone's really busy, but thank you so much, Richard. And, you know, we will always put these interviews um, on beingpatient.com. If you've missed any or you want to share it with a friend, uh, go to our website. We'll upload it there um, onto our YouTube channel. Um, and thanks so much again for your time. Um, and we look forward to hearing more about your research.